When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, October 20, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Darius Dale of 42 Macro, one of our favorite guests here on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Top stories, let's talk about it. It is Bitcoin at an all-time high, at or near an all-time high. We went through uh, 66,976 new all-time high on Bitcoin. Uh, Current price looks like 66,000. 315 on my screen. Lots happening. The ProShares ETF we talked about yesterday. New word today that Van Eck has just won approval for their ETF, soon to be joining the existing uh, ProShares ETF on the uh, New York Stock Exchange being publicly traded. Uh, Big news, much more to talk about there. We've got a big show ahead of you here. Uh, We've got We've got Darius Dale here to talk about the reflation trade as the dominant markets regime. Let's go through uh, and hit what's happening in U.S. equity markets. It looks like, well, it looks like we're at an all-time high on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, up 0.43% on the day. Uh, closing out, looks like still settling down here. Right now, trading 35,609. Uh, S&P 500 uh, up 0.37% on the day, uh, closing out at 4,000. 536. That's also very close to an all-time high. I think the number is 4545 for the all-time high on the S&P 500. While we're talking about price levels, uh, let's talk really quick, just for smiles, about Bitcoin over different time horizons. I saw this earlier on my Bloomberg terminal. I thought this was something that was worth pointing out. It's really interesting. Bitcoin up for the day, 3.41%. Week-to-date, up 6.29%. Month to date, one month, I should say, one month up 52.27%. Year to date, 128% up, 128% up year to date. One year, this is 12 month trailing. This is up 458%. By the way, while we're geeking out on the tape, Let's talk a little bit about different prices for Bitcoin right now. I'm citing uh, XBT USD. That's how it trades uh, on the institutional traders around the world on their Bloomberg terminals. But there are other uh, price references on this coin market cap trading uh, 66,347. Looks like the Coindesk data has it at 66,293. So your mileage may vary. The number you're looking at uh, bounces around a little bit. I guess this matters a bit uh, when you're trying to calculate all-time highs. Lots of data, lots more to geek out on. One of our favorite guests, Darius Dale, with us on the show. Darius, welcome back. Ash, what's up, man? It's great to see you. How you doing? Oh, man, it's great, man. It's always great to see you as well. Really enjoying having you on the show. So let's continue the geek out with what's happening on the macro side. Uh, Talk to us. I mentioned at the top of the show, entering a reflation regime as the dominant market force. Tell us a little bit about that and why it's significant. Yeah, great question, Ash. So at 42 Macro, what we try to do 
uh, is use math and time series to sort of now cast uh, what the market narrative is, what the market regime is, as we call it. And you know, really, since the mid uh, mid July, we've been sort of dealing with stagflation or inflation, as we call it, uh, at Forty Two Macro in our grid process. And we actually this morning we re reflation. Uh, was reemerged as a dominant market regime. This is the first time since mid-June uh, that we've seen that. Uh, but interestingly enough, um, if you look at the number of markets that are actually confirming reflation um, through the lens of our volatility adjusted momentum signal process, it's only 14 out of the 42 markets featured in our in our, in our system. Um, that's down from a trailing three-year peak of 57. Um, if you think about that in percentile terms, you know the conviction in this reflation trade right now is only at 4%. I mean, that's down from a 99th percentile reading in, in mid-June. And so, obviously, uh, this thing potentially has legs and, and a ways to go to the upside. I think bears are trapped here, and they're, they're going to have to chase higher. Yeah, Darius, I know you're a second derivative guy. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of the rate of change on your data and why that is significant. Yeah, so the rate of change on the market regime now casting process, which I just highlighted, is going from you know stagflate, pricing in stagflation to pricing in reflation. And part of the reason I believe that is has been the case is because I think the economy is going to go from stagflation to reflation. So if you think about uh, our grid process, you know, GRID, they actually mean something. Goldilocks is we're in growth and growth's accelerating and inflation is decelerating on a trending basis. Uh, reflation is when both growth and inflation are accelerating on a trending basis. Uh, the I stands for inflation. That's when you have growth trending lower and inflation trending higher. And then lastly, that D stands for uh, deflation. That's where growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. And so you think about what happened in the third quarter of this year. You had the Delta variant. Uh, you had the, the sort of hangover effect from uh, uh, fiscal stimulus. Um, and obviously, uh, the further we get into time, the more the difficult the comps get. Uh, you know, you had a lot of slowing growth data. Uh, most recently, uh, the industrial production figure that we got on Monday, um, it was uh, contracted at a 14% annualized pace uh, in September. That's obviously a really bad number. You had auto sales sort of corroborating that, contracting at a minus 57% annualized pace in September. And so that sort of sets the economy up. It gives it a very easy handoff to accelerate from here in Q4. And ultimately, we do believe the passage of Delta in terms of the economic impact of that, and also the proliferation of vaccines, getting them into the arms of children, will actually coalesce to perpetuate higher growth here in Q4. But it'll be a transitory bounce, but certainly a bounce markets are betting on, and we think they'll continue to bet on at least over the next few months. Yeah, very well said and a very crisp summary of the overall picture. I'm also very glad that you got to explain uh, the grids uh, again, because it's so interesting. And I think kind of teed it up perfectly talking about the second derivative. Uh, it's about whether inflation or deflation are accelerating or declining. Uh, so this idea that it's about the change of state uh, to the next position, and that's how you guys uh, think about what you do. Fascinating take. Absolutely. And, and so for all you guys watching at home, when you talk about macro, you know, you could spend a lot of time. Most people, when they talk about macro, um, they spend most of their time talking about the destination. But I would argue, from a risk management perspective, and, and anything under you know twelve months is is what I consider to be an active risk management duration. Anything longer than that, it's you know that's that's the land of storytelling and and hope. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, if you're talking to a buy side investor, someone who's actively managing risk, you know, what really matters, it's in reverse order of how people typically talk about macro. It's the direction that matters. It's the pace, the pace of the change that matters, and then lastly, you have the destination. Um, so I think most people kind of think about that in reverse, and I think I would challenge most guests watching the program to start reorienting the way they talk about macro into into direction of travel, pace right. of magnitude of change, and and the destination. 
All right, Darius, let me add in one additional complexifier here. So you think about that rate of change uh, rather than the destination. Now, how does that correlate in your view with asset pricing? Yeah, so it's it, markets are constantly gaining new information from the economy and, and from both asset markets and the economy. It's a gigantic reflexive process. Nobody can see the future. No market can see the future. No person, business, no one, no one, no one living or anything living can see the future. The reality is we're all gleaning reflexive signals from each other in terms of uh, picking that up. And so that's why the rate of change matters, because the rate of change is the incremental signal. It price right. is set on the margin in, with respect to financial markets. And so obviously the incremental signals matter most. And when you have a trending set of incremental signals all pointing in one direction, you typically have uh, you know pretty consistent dispersion in, in and across asset markets you know, to the extent that you wind up in one of those four great regimes. Yeah, so well said and clearly explained. Uh, by the way, talking about reflexivity here, uh, you can see my eyes bouncing around. It's because I've got a whole bunch of screens open in front of me. Lots happening right now. Uh, Tesla just posted uh, record revenue and profits in the third quarter. This is a story I'm reading off the wire here from uh, CNBC. It uh, looks like uh, earnings per share on an adjusted basis uh, were 186 versus 159 expected. That's a beat. Revenue. This is probably the number that's driving uh, interest the most here. Uh, it looks like it looks like a beat. It's uh, thirteen point seven six versus uh, one versus thirteen spot six three uh, expected. This is the refinitive data set. So just some information crossing about Tesla right now. And I should add, uh, it looks like looks like Tesla shares in the after hours market are down uh, fractionally. It looks like uh, slightly less than half a percent. Yeah. That, that's a pretty important signal, in my opinion. So obviously, Tesla's shares ran up into the print, so this is a sell the news event. Uh, but I think it's a it's a broader signal for the uh, market. So you know, I do believe, and you know, the reflation has the legs, and this is something we've been talking about for months. So no one, no one, no one is new. Uh, but I think when you sort of look out into into the first quarter of next year, you know, I think we're gonna. It's very likely that we're sim- we have a similar set with respect to what we saw in t- coming out of uh, the Q4 of 09 and Q1 of 2010. Same thing, Q, uh, Q4 of 2011 and uh, Q1 of 2012. We saw the same thing in 2017, heading into 18, and the same thing in 2019, heading into 2020, which is this massive reflation trade uh, that bears get trapped short and, or, and, and they can't get in. And so the, it becomes a performance chase potentially you know, into and through year end. But going back to this Tesla uh, news, I do believe that very near-term risk management setup definitely does not favor chasing inflation here. I mean, so you know, you look at uh, one of the things we look at here uh, on a consistent basis uh, at 42 Macro is the volatility risk premium uh, with respect to changes in realized volatility on a trending basis. And you know, right now, you know, the market is really set up for a pullback, um, not a big pullback, but certainly something that uh, may give you the opportunity to get allocated to some of these themes to the extent you're not, yeah, you're not yet allocated. So um, the implied volatility discount. Uh, don't ask me what that is. That's more of a a, a different level. That's a 102 class uh, discussion. Uh, this is 101 here. That's at minus 12 percent. That's indicative of of bears really having to cover shorts and chase high. Uh, the Qs are minus seven percent. Risk assets in general are minus one percent. You typically tend to see implied volatility premiums uh, anywhere on average between ten to twenty to thirty percent. So the fact that they're a discount, rel- you know, the discount on very low levels of realized volatility over the past few weeks, to me, I think that's a pretty noteworthy signal. In so much that you know the S and P five hundred itself is at the upper boundary of our probable range. It's got zero percent upside versus four percent downside over the next couple of weeks. Um, you got the VIX at you know zero percent downside in terms of its probable range with forty percent upside to twenty one and a half. 
over the next couple of weeks. So definitely be cautious with respect to the near term. But if you're if you're not fully allocated to 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 risk on to to, to being or at the bare minimum increasing your exposure to reflation yet, you will it's likely you will get an opportunity to do that over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean that's there's I heard a hint of bearishness in that setup, or more than a hint, I should say. Multi-duration risk management, my friend. Short All right, so break it down. Talk about the long term. Yeah, break it down. Talk about the time horizons and what you see at each right now. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the short term, as I mentioned, the S&P 500 is overbought. The VIX is oversold. Um, you also have uh, the VXN, the NASDAQ volatility index, is oversold. So that's 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 one sort of warning signal in and of itself. Uh, you have WTI flirting with being overbought as well. Um, you know, so those things in, in conjunction with the implied volatility discounts uh, that I highlighted earlier are telling investors that, hey, this is not a great time to, to take risk. It's in fact, it's a great time to be booking gains to the extent that you bought things when we said buy them a month ago. Like that, you know, the, this is a fantastic time to be booking gains to the extent that you're a higher turnover investor. Obviously, if you're right. uh, a tax, you know, a tax focused investor, someone who's conscientious of that, you know, you're just going to have to deal with the, uh, the, some sort of term volatility. Uh, moving yep. out to the medium term. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Oh, Let me jump in real quick. So uh, WTI looks like 84, spot 25. It rose another uh, 1.5% on the day. But let me ask you this, Darius. What's your short-term mean? What does that mean in terms of days and weeks? Oh, oh. so yeah, short-term, we're talking one to three weeks. You know, let's try to get you know the next one to three weeks at most the next month. But generally speaking, I'm talking about you know one that one to three week duration, which our you know probable range process tends to oscillate between the upper boundary and lower boundary over that those time horizons. Um, with respect to the medium term, you know that's anything under two quarters. You know, kind of looking out. Generally speaking, when I say medium term, I'm talking three to you know two to three to four months, but it can be really anything uh, under two quarters. And you know, looking out with respect to the medium term. You know, we do believe the economy can go from you know right now the conditional probability in Q4, the highest conditional probability is, is, is for stagflation or inflation as we call it at 42 macro. Now that is not the that's the modal outcome, but the distribution itself is fairly flat, meaning that any one of those grid regimes is reasonably probable, and we continue to believe that reflation will emerge as the modal outcome as we continue to get more data throughout Q4 and the now cast you know drag themselves up from where they currently are. Um, so that's the medium term. Looking out the next quarter or so, uh, I do believe that you know maybe at most growth has a you know three month bounce, uh, but eventually we're going to resume the downtrend uh, that we really started to uh, put in you know in earnest starting in June and July of this year. Um, and really, that downtrend could be very persistent uh, with respect to the long term, which is anything um, you know above a couple of quarters uh, in inside of a year. Because again, I, I tend not to talk about things that are over a year because that's destination macro. We do sequence and pace macro here at 42 macro. And so, you know, when you get beyond the medium term, there's a couple of catalysts that are actually quite negative for asset markets. And I would expect to see some real pain, um, you know, in and around the mid to late first quarter of next year. Um, if you want me to unpack those catalysts, I'm happy to. Yeah, that'd be great. Give us a little bit of a framework there for next year. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it's very clear that next year growth and inflation are going to decelerate persistently throughout that, that, you know, throughout calendar 22. 
Um, so in terms of asset markets, what you, you know, we've back-tested everything through the lens of annualized expected returns, percent positive ratios, covariance, volatility, um, anything that takes a macro, we understand how it moves and, and, and reacts to uh, our grid regime process. And what we know is that when growth and inflation slow meaningfully, those tend to have real uh, negative uh, influences upon risk assets, very positive influence on the dollar, on bonds and things, and gold and things of that nature. So that but that sort of peak rate of slowdown is really going to start to begin in earnest in, in, in sort of late Q1 and throughout early Q2. And so that's a, from an economic perspective, according to our models, our projections, that's when you should start to see asset markets starting to look ahead into that time period and really starting to get concerned. And oh, by the way, the other catalyst that I'm talking about is actually quite much more bearish than that. Um, so as you know, net liquidity has been very favorable for asset markets throughout the year to date. Um, you know how we calculate net liquidity, and there's a million ways to do it, but we think this is a good uh, mousetrap here. Um, it's a Fed balance sheet minus the Treasury general account. Um, so as you know, the Treasury general account when that goes up, you know it's tightening uh, monetary, it's tightening uh, policy. When it goes down, it's adding uh, liquidity into the financial markets and the economy. So that's easing policy. So obviously, minus uh, you, you cancel out those double negatives. That blue line, that line of net liquidity is up 2.7 trillion dollars year to date, and that's part of the reason you're seeing all-time highs in Bitcoin, all-time highs in stocks. Uh, that's part of the reason those all-time highs are likely to continue. The issue is, is okay. When does the Fed tapering process really start to slow that line? And more importantly, when does the return of the Treasury back to public debt markets in a material way really start to slow that line and actually cause the line to inflect lower and trend lower? Um, at some and it will at some point throughout uh, 2022. Our estimation on that is sometime around, again, mid to late Q1, just based on the timing of, of Janet Yellen's return to the public debt markets and her, her return being greeted, at least initially, by a ton of liquidity sitting on the sidelines in overnight repo. We've got about $1.4 trillion uh, sitting there uh, right now. But once that $1.4 trillion finds a home, then it's going to be, you know, all hell, all hell could break loose in financial markets once she really starts to drain liquidity from the system. And that sort of coincides with that peak rate of slowdown uh, in mid to late Q2, Q1. Sorry. Yeah. Terry, you mentioned Secretary Yellen talking about the Treasury, talking implicitly about fiscal policy. Uh, you and I were talking off air, and I was hoping you could break this down for our viewers. Uh, we Obviously, it seems like we have three separate debates happening right now in the Congress. We've got a budget debate. We've got an infrastructure debate. We've got a debt ceiling debate. The can just got kicked down the road on the debt ceiling uh, to December 3rd, but that's something that's going to come back online later in the year. Give us a framework for understanding uh, these debates in Congress and their relationship to the macroeconomic situation of the United States. Yeah, no. The, so to me, it's, 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 it's going back to that net liquidity discussion. You really have to understand how big is this, this budget resolution going to be? Because if it's really big, we're going to suck up all that, that, that overnight repo really quickly and move on to draining money out of the actual financial system um, or you know, draining money out of you know, our pockets, you and I, the, you know, the, the investors. Um, it doesn't look, it doesn't appear to be the case. So you have the, um, in terms of the budget resolution, and I'll attack each of those separately, uh, you had uh, Pramila Jepal, which is the, the progressive, um, uh, the sort of progressive caucus leader within the Democrat Party. Last night, uh, after a meeting with President Biden, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, and, and, and Treasury Secretary Yellen, uh, she effectively confirmed that the new sort of price tag or the range for the package is somewhere between $1.9 and $2.2 trillion. Um, that's obviously much lower than the $3.5 trillion price tag that was sort of thrown out there and, and really been bandied about all year. Um, so that's a positive at the margin because it, it slows the, 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 the draining of the eventual draining of liquidity out of financial markets uh, by the uh, U.S. Treasury. Um, but more importantly, I, I do believe just in terms of 
the most recent guidance out of Senator Joe Manchin, it's very likely that we don't even see 1.9 and 2.2. It, it 2.2 is probably going to be somewhere between his 1.5 ceiling and that uh, 1.9 uh, lower boundary in there. And so, you know, who knows when they actually get that done? But the fact that we're actually starting to move the numbers tells you that they're getting close to finding solutions to that debate. Um, finding a solution to that debate is critical because it gets you to the next one, which is the physical infrastructure bill. The progressives in the in the Democrat Party don't want to uh, don't want to lose their leverage in the sort of broader economic uh, uh, spending program um, by by effectively voting for the uh, physical infrastructure, and so they got to get that 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 sort of so broader social spending program done, the budget resolution done. Uh, before the physical infrastructure, um, you know, ultimately gets passed in both houses of Congress, you know, it's, it's pretty much all thumbs up just in terms of uh, support, but it's just not there yet in terms of sequence. And this brings me to the last point, which is the debt ceiling. Obviously, you know, the debt ceiling was part of the, you know, the issue that royal financial markets in September and October, um, you know, just like Congress does, you know, if Congress is good at one thing, it's trading on inside information. And if they're good at two things, it's punting problems into the future. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's, that's their, they're, those, that's their like one, two punch. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they've certainly punted into the future, but the reality is as long as they continue making progress on the budget resolution and on the, um, and on the, and really the budget resolution is all that matters because you get the budget resolution done, you're going to get physical infrastructure done. And oh, by the way, the Democrats are going to, if they get the budget resolution done, they're going to be able to hike the debt uh, ceiling with that process. So, um, it's, you know, it's obviously, you know, October 20th, December 3rd, or thereabouts is sort of the, the current target for when uh, Jenny Yellen may run out of money. I think it'll be later than that, just in terms of how, how late this process really got started and, and her ability to spend $480 billion. But, you know, the reality is, it, I think it's becoming less and less of a catalyst for markets. And this is something we've been talking about in our research of late, which is you have three scenarios with respect to fiscal policy. Um, in terms of uh, you know the, the 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 fiscal policy spate, if you will, out of DC and Q4, and two of those scenarios are positive for markets. Like one, we you know you, I guess you could say we have four scenarios, which is Biden gets his 3.5 and the, all the things get passed. But the reality is that was a very low probability event to begin with, and so the best case scenario is what you know we get two trillion dollars thereabouts or 1.9 now, um, and, and you know they get the physical infrastructure done, they get uh, the budget resolution passed, the debt ceiling passed, and you know fiscal policy is no longer an issue, at least until you know Treasury Secretary Yellen runs out of all that overnight repo. Um, the, the second scenario is that, okay, well, they get it all passed, but it's closer to one and a half trillion, closer to Manchin's trillion, uh, 1.5 trillion, because he's not budging, and all the other stuff uh, comes to fruition, uh, but it actually might actually slow uh, the uptake of the overnight repo. Uh, and then lastly, you have the scenario where uh, all these guys and gals get into a room, yell at each other and scream for a couple of months and ultimately come up with a bagel. Um, that's still a legitimate possibility. I just don't know that it's reasonably probable relative to the other two scenarios. You have the Democrats <laughs> running both houses of Congress, and you also have Democrats running the White House. If they can't do something as simple as pass a budget resolution, they're not going to maintain control of either of those uh, branches of government for an extended period of time. So I think they understand that the clock is ticking on that. Obviously, you know, every election that, that happens in this country uh, tends to uh, start earlier and earlier and earlier. So, I mean, you know, you could think, OK, you have to march to really get this money out the door and, and get on the campaign trail. But maybe it's February, maybe it's January. So I think the, I think the incentive structure is lining up for them to get this done.
Yeah, and obviously, as you point out, implicitly, there's some fragmentation in the Democratic Party, also in the Republican Party. We're seeing it on both sides of the aisle right now, um, resulting in the, some of the challenges in getting four parties. Is that what you're signaling? There are, I said this years ago, yeah. there are four parties in America. You have the, the radical, or not sorry, I'm going to say, I'm going to offend some people who want to say stuff. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend. This is not a political statement. Well, we didn't, because you <laughs> caught yourself early, we didn't know yeah. which party you were going to call radical. So that's exactly. Cool. No, well, let's, let's, let's offend both of them. You have the radical left and the radical right, right? You know, so we, we, you know, or this, you know, the, the progressives and the, and the conservatives, you know, super conservatives. I think what actually happened in, in, with respect to, you know, what happened with the Donald Trump era is he actually borrowed poor people from the 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 the, the, the you know Democrat Party and grabbed them into the Republican Party under the guise of nationalism, and so now you have a kind of a fair fight between the far right and the far left. But the the irony is that they're actually kind of closer to each other um, on that circle. And then obviously you have the you know your traditional uh, conservative blue dog Democrats, and then you have your obviously your your, your fiscal conservative, your traditional um, you know um, you know GOP type uh, type folks. So there's there's truly I mean. We're going to continue to see this political bifurcation the further and further we get uh, into this fourth turning. Uh, you know, my former colleague, Neil House, done a, obviously the thought leader in that. And, you know, obviously that, that, that framework continues to, uh, to play out. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Yeah. I mean, talk about 101. That's a great primer on everything that's happening in Washington, everything that's happening uh, with fiscal policy. Talking of which, uh, I have a clip that I want to show here. Uh, This is Skanda Amaranth, uh, the executive director at Employ America, uh, talking to Mike Green of Simplify. This is a a show that's available uh, on the Essential Plus and Pro tier. That's all of our tiers here at Real Vision. Uh, And it aired uh, just today, 1020. Uh, Let's take a look at that clip. I think there are going to be some, some challenges are take longer to resolve than others. Um, the bulk of the sort of inflation we've seen right now is it, there's a, there's a way in which the fiscal policy mechanisms have played some role in kind of creating a faster recovery that was faster than businesses expected. And businesses did not have the ability to pivot fast enough because you have talked about fragile supply chains. And I think semiconductor autos are a pretty good example, but you're also seeing the housing sector where no one wanted to be burned the second time around. If you're talking about like a sawmill that was um, dealing with sort of housing demand is very fickle, interest rate sensitive. Um, We had a big housing bubble and bust. I'm not going to adjust my capacity right away. You are seeing a lot of learning by doing in some ways. And sort of you learn that actually you do need to adjust your capacity. We are seeing a lot of announcements of expanding sort of that physical capacity. It takes time. Um, Most of these problems, I think, are resolvable on a pretty shorter time horizon. We talk about one year horizon from here. October 2021, October 2022, maybe we do still have all, like certain bottlenecks in place, but I suspect that we're going to be different bottlenecks at least. We're going to grow from this in some important ways, whether it's talking about everything from the semiconductor shortage to the steel shortage. Um, there's some weird things in certain other markets that to watch out for. I suspect we're going to learn a lot about how to make logistics capacity more resilient. Um, and that learning is really important. Is fiscal policy going to repeat itself again as a question about is politics going to repeat itself again? Are we going to actually... Are, are the political winds changing where number of political forces see the benefits of this process? 
I think it's really important for those who see that something healthy going on in the economy. It's not saying inflation itself is healthy. That's not a healthy thing. But if we actually see that the responses to some of the inflation going on now are to invest more aggressively, to have a more resilient approach that's not just calibrated to this low growth, 2% growth world that has marked much of the last, certainly the last decade. And if you can go even further than that, if we talk about just economic slowdown um, over the past few decades, barring the tech boom, it's been pretty pronounced. And I think businesses that were calibrated towards that out towards that have really had super lean supply chains to try and adjust to that. So there you have it. Skanda Amrath. Obviously, it's a complex analysis of all the things that we've just been talking about and some others, uh, fiscal policy, price levels, uh, and additionally, some of the complexity around the challenges we have with supply chains right now. Darius, we've got so many questions that are coming through uh, and I just wanted to jump over to them. Uh, these are questions that are coming to us from our viewers. They're coming from the site. They're coming from Real Vision Exchange, which is our internal social media platform. They're coming from Twitter, which, by the way, uh, you can send to at Real Vision or to me directly at Ash Bennington. But let's just jump in. This is a question that comes to us uh, from Jose. This is from the Real Vision site. Uh, boy, nice, simple question uh, from Jose. The answer is not simple, but the question is, uh, Darius, would you be long volatility and the VIX at this moment? Yeah, for a short-term trade, for sure. I mean, you're talking about the volatility, both the VIX, the NASDAQ volatility index are oversold, the S&P 500 is overbought. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely go buy the VIX uh, for a trade or something like the VXX. Yeah. Keep a trade to trade, though. Here's a question that comes to us from Daniel from YouTube. And the question is, can you explain the mechanics of a dollar way down today with rates still climbing? Uh, What level do you see rates causing resistance at? Thank you. Yeah, no, dollar down with rates up is pure, that's unadulterated reflation. I mean, that, that is how you get reflation. And one of the most interesting dynamics we've seen uh, thus far um, in, in terms of, you know, this breakout in bond yields is the fact that we've seen spread compression um, all the way through. You know, 530s is flattening, 1030s is flattening. And what that's telling you is that all the hawkishness that we're pricing into the short end of the curve is actually being priced out of the back end of the curve meaning that the Fed's uh, policy tightening cycle is likely to get started sooner and end sooner, um, which means the economy runs a little bit less hot. And I would argue, um, in terms of the last week or so, uh, that dynamic in and of itself is what sort of catalyzed the relative strength recovery in things like tech, uh, you know, sort of your more digital economy exposures relative to your um, uh, your, your, your more uh, physical economy cyclical exposures. And this is something I've been talking about <laughs> for a month now. Hey, you need more balance in your portfolio construction to navigate these 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 waters here. Even though it's going to be a reflation trade and the asset markets are going to go up, it's not necessarily the, the sort of clear and obvious reflation trade that we saw from November through the early part of June. You know, where it's like, okay, just go. If it, if it is a cyclical, buy it and put leverage on it. That's not that's not what we're getting here. We're going to get something that's a little bit more balanced, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, here's one question. Uh, this one's actually coming directly from me, but I think it's something that people uh, in the audience are wondering about. You mentioned the reverse repo rate at the Fed. Uh, I know this is a complicated topic, but if you could give us the TLDREI5 version of the relationship between fiscal policy uh, and the reverse repo rate. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's a few statistics that are time series, really. Um, and I think they're all in FRED, if you want to go check them out, that, that are pretty... Um, that are pretty instrumental and instructive. One that uh, most people watching this by now know what the Treasury General account is. That's the Treasury sort of checking account. 
at the Fed. When that goes up, they're, they're, they're sucking money out of the economy. When that goes down, they're putting money in. And so when it goes down, and as it's gone that straight down all year, it's gone from you know somewhere around 13 or uh, 1.3 to 1.5 trillion dollars down to 50 billion <laughs> as of today. So you know we're obviously running out of a, a checking account there. Um, it, you know, in terms of uh, the, the ability to provide liquidity to asset markets uh, from that from that dynamic, uh, the number of the other time series I think is really important for uh, people to sort of uh, monitor is, is overnight repo. Generally speaking, that's watching paint dry. Like it's you know it's, it's hardly anything to talk about. But obviously, since you know kind of the early part of um, the middle of this year, it's gone straight up. And part of the reason it's gone straight up is because Treasury supply has gone straight down. You can't find a bill. You can't get a T bill. You can't get your hand on any paper. And then, more importantly, the interbank lending market has been practically broken for a variety of reasons that are too long to talk about on the show. And so, investors have been looking at the Fed and saying, "Okay, these rates are sufficient enough um, until we can get some uh, real paper to get our hands on. We're ca- we're happy to park money overnight with the Fed." And so, you know, going back to the analysis that I talked about earlier, which is, you know, normally when that TGA balance goes up, you know, it's pa- it's a negative. It's it's draining liquidity from the system. But uh, the point I'm making about the overnight repo is that there's a bunch of money on the sidelines actually waiting for that to happen, and, uh, and it's a and it's going to act as a buffer upon risk assets uh, in, in an otherwise traditionally unhealthy sort of um, yeah. dynamic. Well, very well explained. I know we're running out of time here, but I want to get in one other question. This comes from Anthony S. from YouTube. Uh, Anthony wants to throw in a hand grenade at the last minute. Uh, does Darius see any changes to the forecast if the Federal Reserve does not taper? If they do not taper, I think so. Ironically, if they do not taper, and this is get your pins and pads out, I think bond yields are probably going to go higher on the long end. Dollars probably going to go down, and you're probably going to have a little bit more persistence and sustainability to the reflation trade. If anything, the magnitude of it will actually start to broaden out and get a little bit more aggressive. Um, I think it's I think it's aggressive to, for them to not taper at this point. And the reason I say that is, you know, you go back to sort of like, you know, and I, I was v- very much guilty of this. And this is, you know, maybe three months ago when I was calling out Bullard for kind of being out the lunch on inflation, because it became very clear to me at that point in time that, hey, the rate of change is actually peaking. The annualized rates of inflation across core, across headline, across various metrics were actually starting to slow on a trending basis. Well, that changed. In the last couple of months, we've actually seen inflation firm up on an annualized basis, for example, uh, median, C, uh, median CPI when you're cutting off the tails of the of the, of the of the basket and just looking at you know what's you know what's moving in the in close to the median, and you know that ticked up to 5.57 percent on an annualized basis in, in September. That's the highest rate of median CPI on an annualized basis going back to August of 1990. And again, yeah. this is this is sequential. It's not year over year. Obviously, base effects got you with the high inflation. This is sequential. So there's stuff happening in the economy now at the margins that is a bit more hawkish and a bit more inflationary uh, than we could have talked about, you know, maybe say one or two months ago. And so I think it'd be pretty reckless for the Fed not to, the bare minimum, get started on tapering here. Darius, we've run into our usual problem. Too much great content, not enough time. No worries, man. We'll catch you next week then. Hey, listen, I've got to say, though, uh, coming off yesterday's show with Tony Greer, always a great one. Uh, Tony mentioned, called you out specifically and said you are one of his absolute favorite new guests on Real Vision, uh, one of his favorite guys uh, in the macro uh, fin twit space. And I was thinking we should have you both on the show together. Wouldn't that be Let's fun? Let's do Three that. Of us yeah. jump Get on. done next week. Awesome. Tony, man, I appreciate you, man. I love watching your work, love learning from your work. This is a beautiful community we're building, man. Wall Street 3 put on for life. Oh, perfectly said and butter smooth, man. This was a great show. Thank you so much for joining us, Darius Dale.
Appreciate you. <laughs> Terry, it's always a pleasure, man. Thanks for watching, everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.